Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. Happy New Year! 2022! Woo! I don't know about you, but it's 2022! (laughs) (laughs) What even was 2021? What happened to it? Where did it go? Honestly, I have no idea. How could such a terrible year disappear so quickly? I know, it's weird, huh? Because it was bad. Yeah, bad in a lot of ways. Well, there was that glorious moment late spring, early summer where we were, air quotes, done with the pandemic. Yeah. That was a really beautiful two weeks. (laughs) (laughs) And here we are. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I have high hopes for 2022. I mean, they don't take any particular form, just sheer blind optimism yes optimism i i'm not a resolution person anyway but i think just a loose hanging goal of being happier Mm -hmm. that's it yeah who knows what that actually means (laughs) what is happiness (laughs) Uh. i've been finding happiness and a lot of TV shows, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I need it to be over because as a person who does not do well in the heat, I cannot continue to have outdoor summer hangouts in 2022. <laughs> you know, not like uh, normal. Like, yeah, of course, there are normal outdoor activities. But I mean, like every Everything single meal, yeah. every hangout, I can't miserable outside (laughs) i can't do it again but it's a dry heat just sit in the shade but there's not always shade because there's millions of people that live here oh yes and everybody's outside i'm thinking of the before times and we would just Mm -hmm. go for a walk and be like hey let's be in the shade because you and i are both like epically white tragically pale (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but think about the times where we would spend, I don't know, 20 to 30 minutes of our lunch break, one, looking for a single place to sit, and then two, a place that wasn't in the sun, and then just going back to our basement office <laughs> and eating down there anyway. So that's just life now, is everything is giving up and just go back to your solitary home (laughs) so i'm hoping i hope we get a couple more decreases in this covid and actually have a semi-indoor summer is my real hope but i remember this time last year everybody was kind of like what will you do when things go back to normal like what will be the first thing you do and what will you never do again and all those conversations and now i just feel like I don't even, what is life? What does that even mean? What are friendships? Like, (laughs) I feel like I'm going to have, I'm going to have to learn to walk all over again, metaphorically speaking. (laughs) But I feel like nobody gets it. I saw a tweet today that was like, the pandemic is like a door. Once you go through it, you can't go back. But then everybody was like, that's not how doors work. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's like a door, a second story door with no landing or stairs. <laughs> it's that kind yeah. of door. Maybe it's one of those doors that like, I feel like you've seen them. I've seen them a lot in California, actually, which is, I guess, like a fire escape door, but there's not actually a fire escape. So maybe they're supposed to have like a ladder inside of the house, but it's like a two or three story building and there's just a door that's a drop yeah it's like that kind of door like a juliet balcony without the balcony (laughs) maybe the more appropriate would be like the pandemic is like a diving board yeah and once you jump off there's no water and even if there were you don't know how to swim or i don't know (laughs) yeah the pandemic 
they end though. <sighs> they have ended in the past. It's so weird though too. how like three waves, four waves, like all of that seems so bearable when it was 200 years ago. But when you're actually in it, it's like how many more fucking waves? And you can get a little existential of like, well, these are some of the best years of my life or now just not trash. That's a negative mindset. But like, <laughs> I, I, there's a real sense of loss out of my own life. I've lost two years of free enjoyment yeah. for cautious public health measures. And I'm yeah. still doing it. I'm not giving up because I still don't want to get it. Yeah, I don't want to get it. I really, I mean, not only because I care about society and other people and all that, or even like my parents who we live really close to in our in our lives, it, to such an extent it would be difficult if one of us got COVID to protect them. But also, like, when I even just get a cold, I'm out for a week. I think COVID would fucking wreck me, to be <laughs> honest. My immune system is not my best friend and hasn't been even before this. So I'm just like, I'm definitely one of those motherfuckers who would get completely jacked up. Maybe if there is another summer of COVID, I'm going to go and turn myself into a vampire (laughs) and only come out at night when it's not hot and sunny anymore. Now I'm getting better because I'm seeing what you're doing here. (laughs) <laughs> well, I think from the title of the episode, uh, listeners know where we're going. Yes. Uh, and I have a story for this section <laughs> <laughs> about the time I accidentally went to a vampire bar. Yeah, let's hear it. That's kind of like banter slash beginning. That's a perfect transition. So it was the pre-times. It was the before. <laughs> And I was in New Orleans with a bunch of friends and drinking and went to this bar called The Dungeon. Mm-hmm. And pretty close to blackout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm like just drinking in this bar. It's kind of weird, dark themed. And then uh, someone appears and I was like, have you gone to the bar in the back? And I say someone because I was too drunk to know who this who my guide was through this evening. (laughs) And I was like, no. So you go through this like industrial sort of refrigerator door with the hanging plastic flaps. Mm -hmm. And then it's a courtyard with a bunch of fire. And then you go into another bar in the back where everybody's sitting in like prison cells. (laughs) And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. (laughs) So then I'm drinking there. And then... Someone appears at my side and it's like, have you gone to the bar upstairs? <laughs> so I'm like, no, I haven't. And so then I um, go upstairs and find this other bar. But this bar is where people who either thought they were or were pretending to be vampires were. Mm. So I have got khaki shorts and a pink and purple plaid shirt. <laughs> very red cheeks <laughs> uh, and then so these people in like all black leather start just hissing at me and I was like this is weird <laughs> and um because they see those rosy cheeks and you know what they're thinking probably and there's like <laughs> faux skulls on all the walls <laughs> um and I make my way to the bar. I ignore the people hissing at me. I go to that <laughs> bar and I start drinking. And then I need to find a bathroom and it's like hidden behind a bookshelf. It was a whole ordeal. <laughs> uh, and that's like my whole memory of the night. Wow. I don't know who the person was. I don't know where my friends were. Oh my gosh. It's probably, you know, like LARPer cosplay I mean, even if they believe they were vampires, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, And they were probably just like, what is this idiot doing here? He needs to leave our safe space. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. I remember when I was a kid and, you know, you play make-believe with your friends or whatever. 
and I play make-believe, and I was the one, I was, like, the role-playing Nazi, so if somebody broke character or, or like, forgot your play name and would call me Kirsten, I would be like, listen, you're not going to be able to play house with me if you keep up like this. You have to stay calling me whatever, Susie. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, of course, then nobody wanted to play with me at all because I just sucked all the joy right out of it, but... <laughs> you would have just been hissing at me. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But the thing, the only piece of the story, well, not the only, I truly would like to know who that person was. Who guided you around? Uh-huh. Because one, I my own safety, I was not behaving safely under the, I mean, in fairness to myself, I never left the bar. Yeah. I didn't, like, follow someone out into the streets to a new bar. Right. Like, and it, like, I've I've looked at pictures of it since, like, it was it was like a kitschy yeah thing but so i never left the bar like with a stranger or anything but i did leave my friends in the bar and yeah that's the part where i'm like mm, that wasn't safe that wasn't good alcohol yeah. <laughs> practices yeah. and just sort of who was that and why were they showing me these cuz they just appeared and left like they didn't stay and drink with me i wasn't keeping conversation it was right. just after after a while in the like prison part they just appeared again. Like, have you been upstairs? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they were like, oh my gosh, get a load of this guy. The vampires up in the upstairs bar are going to hiss the hell at him. Hiss the hell. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. but <laughs> It's still appropriate. Hiss the hell at him. <laughs> Definitely not hiss in heaven. <laughs> Maybe it was one of their pretend familiars. Mm, Maybe bringing so, me up the so wild. I mean I'm ready to dive into the world of vampires are you yes uh, I was trying to think of a like what's the typical very very sleepy <laughs> <laughs> but that's like hypnotizing someone I'm I can't think of what vampires oh no. I want to suck your blood <laughs> <laughs> but what's the very sleepy I feel like I mean it's Hollywood vampire but still uh, they still hypnotize, I guess. It's not just magicians. <laughs> uh, so how do we get from a crime to Hollywood vampires? I think you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> We've teased it as much as we possibly can. <laughs> but in line with our new Name the Episodes more directly and clearly, you already know that we're going to talk about Vlad the third, good old Vlad. And so I want to start by taking us back to the Middle Ages, mid medieval times, so to speak, and um, talk a little bit about Vlad the third, aka Vlad Dracula, aka Vlad the Impaler. Talk a little bit about his childhood. So because it was a super long time ago, not a whole lot is known, but we do know that he was born in Sigishwara, Transylvania, which is now part of modern-day Romania, and he was born around 1431. He was the son of Vlad II, who was also known as Vlad Dracul because of his membership in a medieval military order that was sworn to protect Christian territories or Christian Europe from the Ottomans. This group was known as the Order of the Dragon, and in Romanian, Dracul means dragon, and Dracula means son of dragon, thus one of Vlad III's sobriquets, Vlad Dracula. So Vlad III, which is what I'm going to call him throughout because it's just easier, I mean Vlad III is so self-important. <laughs> <laughs> Vlad III, his dad was a voivode, or ruler of Wallachia a principality south of Transylvania. And incidentally, because I'm a nerd, um, I wanted to mention that Wallachia is an exonym for the principality. An exonym is a name that is used by people outside of a territory. Oh, uh, insert. Dun, dun, dun. The more you know. <laughs> that is new info to me. Yeah, and so the people from Wallachia called the area Terra Rumanesque, or Romanian land. Also of note here, Vlad III was born in Transylvania, where his dad was in exile, 
And he's widely associated with Transylvania, which is also part of Romania now. But at that time, the two areas were distinct principalities. And so not only was Vlad III not from Transylvania, as is widely supposed, but he was literally descended from the ruler of a place not Transylvania. So that's kind of like as not Transylvanian as you can get. Mm-hmm. So that was new information to me, and I wanted to share that. But back to our story of Vlad III. So we know that he had an older brother and a younger brother, as well as some illegitimate half-siblings, which in the interest of time we won't go into today. At that time, Wallachia was kind of a hot mess, really. It's positioned in just such a way that Christians to the West wanted to beat back the Ottomans to the East. And modern-day Romania, where all of this takes place, was kind of their chessboard and their battleground. So Transylvania and Wallachia were both part of the larger Holy Roman Empire, specifically the Kingdom of Hungary, and at other times the Kingdom of Bulgaria. Again, just a lot of transition, a lot of battles during this time, a lot of changing alliances. I mean, it's got a very kind of Game of Thrones vibe, really. In 1442, when Vlad III was about 11, his father was called to a diplomatic meeting with Ottoman Sultan Murad II. He took Vlad III and his younger brother Radu along for the ride, because why not? It's only like one of the most dangerous places and dangerous times in history, but sure. The meeting was actually a trap, and the Sultan took all of them captive. When the disputed Vyavode of Wallachia died while the three of them were in captivity, the Sultan agreed to let Vlad II go and rule his land, but only on the condition that he left Vlad III and his brother Radu behind. So that is how Vlad III was basically raised by the Ottomans. He reportedly got a great education, but also was maybe tortured and abused during that whole time. Whatever really happened there, it seemed to mess him up, is a technical term I think that we can use here. In 1447, his father and older brother were murdered by Wallachian boyars, which I've seen translated as both landowners, because remember, this is medieval times, so feudalism Mm -hmm. was in full swing. I've also seen it translated as warlords in other places, which feels a little judgy, but there you go. So essentially, the boyars were nobles who didn't really care who was in charge as long as they got theirs. And so they fought little battles amongst themselves and really kept the area very destabilized. After word of the murders made it to the Sultan, he agreed to release Vlad III, ostensibly to go rule Wallachia and make it amenable to Ottoman influence and occupation. So he wanted Vlad III to kind of plead, pledge, Pledge is the word I'm looking for. (laughs) Pledge allegiance to um, the Sultan and and to the Ottomans. So, you know, Vlad III is no idiot. He says that he will. He goes. But like I said before, being held hostage and possibly tortured for five years didn't make Vlad III super pro-Ottoman, like in his heart of hearts. So (laughs) (laughs) he went back to his ancestral home and determined to just do things his own way. So when he got there, he found things in utter disarray because of that feudal infighting that I talked about before and the boyars and what they were kind of doing to the country. So he decided to clean that shit up. He invited hundreds of the boyars to a banquet to like make a Wallachia dream board and all that, like plan a future for the country. But surprise, it was a trap. He had all those assholes who plotted his dad and brother's murders killed. Boom. Now, this is where shit gets fucked up. Turns out, in Ottoman captivity, Vlad III had learned something besides advanced mathematics. He had seen, and more importantly learned how, to torture people through impalement, which is just exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. It's the practice of impaling a person, either vertically or horizontally, with a large stake. Pretty simple. But the Ottomans, and subsequently Vlad III, had perfected this practice to the point of it being 
one of the absolute worst ways that I've heard of to die. What they did is they learned how to impale someone in just such a way that it missed all of the vital organs. So it would sometimes take many hours or even days for people to die this way. So they were impaled while alive. This is not a, like putting someone's head on a stick. This is like torture slash execution. Yeah. And they were put on display. So it's kind of like the practice of public shaming combined with torture combined with execution. So a very efficient way to go about it, but pretty fucking gory yeah. and brutal. Yeah. So Vlad III went on to use this practice and lots of other sadistic practices against pretty much any opponent that he had. Um, he had trade disputes with Saxons in Transylvania, and Saxons is just another term for, at that time, people who came from the area that we now know as Germany. He had disputes over trade with them. They also had once supported the Boyers, so dudes just all impaled. Mm -hmm. A group of Ottoman emissaries once made a diplomatic visit to Vlad III, and they refused to remove their turbans for religious reasons. He had three spikes driven into their skulls to ensure that the hats never came off. Like, that's how he uh. dealt with problems. Yeah. He also reportedly had a, like, I don't know, irrational hatred of thieves, which, I mean, nobody is like, hey, a thief, but... <laughs> He like he would impale people for stealing. He was just, yeah. So in 1453, Constantinople fell to the Ottomans, and Vlad III took up arms to protect Wallachia. That was kind of seen as now they're it's one step too far. They're coming into our territory. So he takes up arms, and one of his battles led to the killing of 20,000 people who were impaled and arranged at the outskirts of Targoviste, a town in that area. When the Sultan arrived in his march from Constantinople trying to take over more of the territory, he was reportedly so repulsed that he turned around and went straight back to Constantinople. Yeah, I would. Yeah, right? I mean, it was just horrific. There are also stories that Vlad dined while seated in these forests of impaled people that he dipped his bread in the blood of the sufferers you know there are a lot of stories but there are things that are very documented he poisoned wells and burned villages as he moved through ottoman territory women killed old people killed infants yes he had no mercy there were reports of women impaled with their infants while they suckled on their breasts. I mean, it's just as gory and gross as you can imagine. But he also talked about these things himself. He was not ashamed or trying to hide. Again, he was the, the ruler of, of a, a principality. In 1462, he wrote to an ally, quote, I have killed peasants, men and women, old and young, who lived at Obluxta, and Novosalo, where the Danube flows into the sea. We killed 23,884 Turks, without counting those whom we burned in homes or the Turks whose heads were cut by our soldiers. Thus, your highness, you must know that I have broken the peace, end quote. <sighs> so, you know, dude was vicious, um, sadistic, many said, and in 1477, Vlad III died as he lived, violently. He was killed in battle, and reports say that his head was returned to the sultan and displayed on a pike outside the gates of Constantinople. Even in his lifetime, stories of his sadism were spread far and wide, like I said before. Some say, though, that these stories were started and spread primarily by the Saxons and were overly vicious more than he actually was that he was um these people will say kind of a standard leader at the time doing what he needed to do to protect his people and his territory in fact a lot of romanians today think he was a national hero for fending off both the ottomans and the hungarians and bulgarians leading to the eventual unification of romania in 1859. Former Romanian Minister of Defense 
Mircea Pascu famously said that Vlad III would have been, quote, condemned for crimes against humanity had he been put on trial at Nuremberg, end quote. Which, duh, I don't think that we need, you know, a former minister of defense to tell us that these would have been war crimes. Um, he was just a bad dude and a feared leader, a warrior, depending on, you know, who you are, what your perspective is on history. You can see these behaviors through different lenses, but there's no debating that he killed a lot of people. Yeah. Man, a lot, a I, lot of people. That quote, I'm just, it's like, <laughs> cool. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it was, do you know what, when it happened? Like, <laughs> I mean, not that that's an excuse, but like. It was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time, for sure. And I mean, you know, we talk sometimes about childhood experiences and what that does to you and how that impacts you as an adult and what level of fucked up childhoodness could mitigate, even if only in a tiny degree, the things that you end up doing in life. But, you know, we hear serial killers bitching and whining about, oh, my parents didn't love me and my mom was an alcoholic. And it's like, dude was kidnapped by the Ottomans, possibly tortured for five years, never saw his dad or his brother ever again, and, like, subjected to basically torture porn on the reg. Like, and maybe it was he's their got... political rivals, too. Right, and yeah. At war, like... So maybe like a smidge of mitigation there. I don't know. I just hate that the way my brain works as you were talking was like, <laughs> Istanbul is Constantinople now. It's Istanbul, <laughs> not Constantinople. <laughs> uh, well, that's why you have the culture side. True nightmare. I mean, even if he didn't dine in the forest, like I could totally see how that would, a, a superstition, a rumor that would grow because, I mean, he truly was a living monster. Yeah. So I could see that not being true. It could be true, too. But, like, I could see him loving the fear, the rumors, the... Mm -hmm. I mean, he seemed to be a person who ruled through fear and strikes me as a person who, you know, bragged about what he did. And he probably wanted people. He wanted that legacy. That was the goal. Right. Well, and I mean, then he could win battles without lifting a finger. I mean, if the sultan just turned around and left, I mean, it's basically the equivalent of you get sent to jail and you like do something batshit crazy on your first day to like, right? I mean, that's a known thing. And that's essentially what he's doing here is he's behaving insanely and flaunting it. And it worked. Yeah, I, I would turn around. <laughs> I would totally turn around. It's like, eh, I mean, the mountains are pretty and all, but I don't, I don't think we need this territory. <laughs> it's like, I, clearly this person is not well, and it's not going to be a normal battle. Do we really need to have this battle? Right. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, it worked, and yeah, I don't know. I also wonder about the mind who is like, 20,000 20, impaled, writhing people. Because, again, they live for days. So you would walk up to one of these scenes, and if it had just happened recently, there would be moaning. There would be screaming. I mean, it would be like, you know, a Bosch painting for sure. And the part that, like, makes you think he's a monster is that he dipped his bread in the blood. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think this is, uh, maybe I'm, jumping a little bit ahead but like do you think it's too dark to have movies about like historical movies about this because there's not really like as i was looking through the culture side which we'll get into like mm -hmm. there's very little like no movies stuff about vlad the man mm. is it just too dark do you think i mean it could be that i think although this never love... stopped hollywood we I was love gonna say... King Arthur. We love Knights of the Round. We love all this, like, English, anglicized. But, like, where are the war movies about this? I mean, I was, I was going to say it's because there's not a lot known about 
him, but I mean, that never stopped Hollywood from making shit up. So I don't know. I mean, I do think that there aren't a lot of heroes in all of this, mm-hmm. you know, all side on the one side, you've got like the Holy Roman empire and the Pope and like the Holy Roman emperor. I mean, all that is dirty and gross and violent. And then you've got like this guy. And then on the other side, you've got the Ottomans and it's like, that's where he even learned how to impale people. So, I mean, it's like, there's no kind of protagonist. I don't know who would be the protagonist <laughs> in, in this story. It would be pretty dark. There was a time when I was managing a retail store and didn't know what to do with my life. And I applied to be an English speaking magazine writer for a one year travel around Romania. Mm-hmm. And I always think about what my life would be if I would have gotten that. Like, I would have had to have just, like, lived with the editor's family. It was all very sketch. Well, so I have a Dracula story myself, which is not as exciting as yours. But I have been to Romania, and I've I've stayed in Transylvania. And um, I stayed at a little B&B, which was restored by this guy who claimed that his family had been probably these boyas or whatever, boyers, these assholes who had the Vlad's dad killed. Mm-hmm. But he he claimed to be descended from noble nobility and he had this restored cottage and whatever. And I mean, it was quaint as fuck. And we stayed, I stayed with a friend and it's like Austrians and Germans and it was beautiful and there's a lake nearby and we went to Bran's castle, which is also known as Dracula's castle in Bran, which is outside Brashov. And I don't actually, I was going through a terrible divorce at the time. So I don't, I actually don't even think, this is so sad. Don't ever do this. Like I just saw a meme the other day that's like a picture from The Little Mermaid where the king is saying like, if a boy hurts you, remember you're a princess and he's a man. (laughs) But like, yeah, don't don't let somebody jerk your European vacation around. But I don't think I went into to Brand's Castle itself. I stood out in like this ancient town and blubbered over a stupid jackass guy. So that's my story of that. But in doing all this research, I found that Brand's Castle, they don't think that that Vlad 3 ever actually went there, set foot in that castle. He was known to be in different areas of Transylvania at different times and to travel through there. But mm-hmm. um, they think that basically like tourism entities came together at some point and picked that one because it was kind of picturesque as being Dracula's castle. And then they built up this mythology. And I mean, it's a beautiful castle. It's a beautiful town. I recommend it. And I recommend Transylvania, which is also beautiful as a place to travel but yeah don't be dumb like me and be like oh dracula lived here dracula was definitely a vampire etc (laughs) etc and also don't let a guy jerk around your european vacation no matter what no and listeners if any of you are rich and want to send kirsten and i to transylvania we're open to it (laughs) For sure. We could do on-the-ground reporting, interviews, everyone. Although I will say, which, duh, I mean, this is like the dumbest American thing to say. No one speaks any English there at all. Like That was part of my research about the job. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not even single words, nothing. Getting around was challenging and, you know... Like you just, you get in the taxi at the airport and it's like hand gestures pointing at words on paper and hoping that you make it where you're going, but so beautiful. And I think because of the, the communist period and it's at least when I went, which is almost 20 years ago now, still a very poor place, Mm -hmm. but beautiful and wonderful. And so this town that we stayed in. I mean, it was agrarian, farms everywhere, but no tractors. Like, literally, people didn't have tractors. It was oxen and, like, stuff that we see in pictures of how they did their farming. But what was really cool is that every evening, the the goats would come in from the fields, and they mm-hmm. would come through the main... I mean, there's only one road in the town. They would come down the main road, and everybody went out 
like to welcome the goats back. <laughs> <laughs> and there was a shepherd who was like the town shepherd. So every family might have like one goat or two goats or however many. But the shepherd like took all the town's goats out into the field for the day. And then at the end, they came back and the whole town came and greeted them and like banged on pots. And it was like like every day. This is just part of their life. I mean, it, it was just such a nice way of living this town and and the people i met were so friendly it was amazing yeah i probably i'm not a guided tour person in general but if i were to explore that part of the world i might consider like just a fully guided tour with translators and stuff it would help like what ended up happening is this B&B that we were staying at, the the owner, he had been raised and educated in France or something, not in Romania. Um, and so he spoke English very well, and he took us around, and he organized stuff for us. I I don't think we could have done it without that. Uh, I'm jealous. I, I mean, obviously, there were parts uh, that weren't great on your trip, but uh, <laughs> that's very, very cool. Yeah, it was so cool. And I took pictures, which I can't find, and... That whole part of my life is just, I was much like Wallachia in the Middle Ages. I was a hot mess. (laughs) (laughs) With that, should we move over to the culture? Yeah, I can't wait to hear. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review our show. It really helps us. Plus, we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode. So Vlad the Man, obviously a major historical figure. And like I alluded to just a second ago, surprisingly or not surprisingly, you made a good point, Kirsten, about there's no real winner or hero to root for. (laughs) But there is not a lot about Vlad the Man. Stories about him, you know, just sort of consist of him being one of the best known medieval rulers, especially of Romania and somewhat through Europe. He has a very high esteem, which I'll get into sort of as we go through. But in 1897, he went from man to myth, somewhat accidentally possibly, when Bram Stoker's Dracula was published. Mm. So this was the first book to make the connection between Dracula slash Vlad and Mm. vampires. But it's kind of a disputed claim, not necessarily disputed, but like, It's on shaky ground, reviewing a lot of his notes. One of the stories I found was that he was in a library and found a book about Vlad, Mm -hmm. like Dragul. Mm -hmm. And he thought Dragul translated to devil Mm -hmm. in Romanian. And he borrowed that. Mm. So he probably knew very little, if anything, about Vlad the man. So it's kind of all happenstance. But... Regardless, that's our reality now. <laughs> so it's hard to know his intention, his knowledge base, but our reality now is Vlad III is Dracula. Mm-hmm. And reportedly, Stoker had his attention drawn to the blood-sucking vampires of Romanian folklore by Scottish author Emily Gerard um, in her 1885 article called Transylvanian Superstitions. So before I move on, Emily Gerard is someone I'd never heard of, and as someone who loves both folklore and horror, I wanted to highlight her for a second. So Emily and her sister, Dorothea, were both writers, and they collaborated with each other. Emily married a military officer, and her familiarity with Transylvanian folklore came about as a result of her husband being stationed in various Transylvanian cities. So I was able to find a copy of the article through Project Gutenberg, and that's linked in the episode notes if you want to read the full thing, which I did. It's like really, really interesting. Yes, please. <laughs> so there, I pulled a passage out that I'm, I'm going to read a quote from. But the whole thing is in our episode notes if you want to read it. So, quote, More decidedly evil, however, is the vampire, or Nosferatu, in whom every Romanian present believes as firmly as he does in heaven and hell. There are two sorts of vampires, living and dead. 
the living vampire is in general the illegitimate offspring of two illegitimate persons, but even a flawless pedigree will not ensure anyone against the intrusion of a vampire into his family vault, since every person killed by a Nosferatu becomes likewise a vampire after death, and will continue to suck the blood of other innocent people till the spirit has been exercised, either by opening the grave of the person suspected and driving a stake through the corpse, or firing a pistol shot into the coffin. In very obstinate cases, it's further recommended to cut off the head and replace it in the coffin with the mouth filled with garlic, or to extract the heart and burn it, stewing the ashes over the grave. That such remedies are often resorted to, even in our enlightened days, is a well-attested fact, and there are probably few Romanian villages where such has not taken place within memory of its inhabitants, end quote. Wow. So... I think it's pretty safe to say that there would be no Bram Stoker's Dracula without Emily Gerard's Transylvanian superstitions. Mm -hmm. She's not the only one. She's not the only one to have written about it. She's not the only one to have talked about vampirism. But Bram specifically read this from her. Mm -hmm. As well as William Wilkinson's 1820 novel entitled... Account of the Principalities of Wallachia and Moldovia with political observations relative to them. Real page turner, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> but this is where, even though there were not notes specifically about Vlad, mm-hmm. um, in Bram's notes that have been, you know, gone through, mm-hmm. this book could have still given him insight into Vlad the Third. Yeah. But we know now the popular version is that he just saw the name mistranslated it and then the rest was history Mm -hmm. but so stoker used all of this to create his iconic novel dracula interesting enough he knew very little about vlad as a man if anything but either way the novel dracula is one of the most famous pieces of english literature of all time Mm -hmm. so popular that many of the book's characters have entered popular culture as archetypal versions of their characters, meaning Count Dracula or Dracula is synonymous with vampire. Mm-hmm. Van Helsing with vampire hunter. Mm-hmm. So it's like Kleenex or Q-tip. Right, right. <laughs> Those are brand names. These are Bram's character names, but they are so proliferated that that is just what they mean. Right. You haven't said in a long time that this may be like the thing that we've covered that has had the biggest influence. You haven't said that in a while. Girl, hold on to your hats because it is coming. (laughs) (laughs) So since this novel is part of the public domain, adaptations and use of characters are ever present in a way that I've said it a bunch. (laughs) But this time I really Uh. think (laughs) we have found our most prolific cultural reverberation. Oh my god, we're so in sync. It's incredible. (laughs) (laughs) This must take the cake. I mean, granted, we could subcategory it out about like ancient historical uh, crime that has led to this versus things that are only 100 years old versus things that are 20 years old. I'm sure there's like some sort of leveling that could be done. Yeah. Well, I mean, we like the word confluence a lot on this podcast. And I do feel like this created like a nexus or a confluence, if you will, that let a lot of different folklore and mythology kind of things come together in this perfect way that then gave them new life and launched them into the modern era. Mm -hmm. And speaking of the modern era, as is often the case in capitalism, Stoker earned very little from the novel Mm -hmm. because of mistakes he made in complying with U.S. copyright laws. It didn't stop him, though. I mean, he wasn't destitute, but... Oh, man, he got ripped off. Yikes. I don't, it didn't go into the legalese, but apparently there were like two different places you had to like file copyright in United States law, and he only did one of the two, which made it null and void. Ugh. But it didn't stop him. So Stoker himself wrote the first theatrical adaptation of his novel, Mm -hmm. which was presented in the Lyceum Theater in 1897. The play was performed 
only once for the sole purpose of securing a stage copyright on the material in England. Oh, So I think he learned mm-hmm. after. But yeah, so apparently it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I read. Like, it was so bad. But so it was all only to get the stage patent for other theatrical works. Worse than the movie with Keanu Reeves? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Um, So then a couple decades later, so 1924, with the permission of the Stoker estate, the story was adapted for stage a second time by Hamilton Dean. And from there, it's been constant in theater. Mm -hmm. So in 1927, it was revised by John Balderston, and it opened on Broadway starring Bela Lugosi and Edward Van Sloan. So this version also included a direct mention that Dracula was Vlad. Vlad the Impaler. Mm. So that's as early as 1927 and with the permission of the Stoker estate. Hmm. This stage version directly connected it to Vlad. (laughs) So this kind of strikes me as after the fact, people were like, oh, wow, this really seems to line up with Vlad. Like, how smart of you to do this on purpose? And he's like, yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, they might not have known the story about the mistranslation, or they might have, and were like, oh, yeah, yeah, this yeah, works. yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, is why, I mean, I know it's still disputed about what he actually did, but as early as 1924, it was directly tied with the estate's permission to Vlad III. Well, and I feel like as marketing people, we can say that this 100% happens in real life, where sometimes (laughs) things that start out as accidents just perfectly align, and you then take them and run with them. I've done it myself. Yeah, totally. I mean, obviously small scale, but like, and you best believe you take credit in the moment. (laughs) For sure. Um, So eventually this stage production would see an acclaimed Broadway revival in 1977 starring Frank Langella as the Count. Mm. Incidentally, coincidentally, both Lugosi and Langella went on to play the role in films. Cool. But I'll get to that in just a little bit. Other dramatic stage adaptations include 76's Dracula Sabat by Leon Katz, Dracula the Vampire Play by Tim Kelly in 78, Countess Dracula, a play in three acts by Neil DeBrock in 80. Mm. Dracula, a play by Chris Bond, was performed in 84 with Daniel Day-Lewis playing Dracula and Peter Capaldi playing Jonathan Harker. There was Out for the Count by Martin Downing in 86. (laughs) (laughs) They get creative. Uh, Vlad Dracula the Impaler by Romanian poet Marine Surscu in 87. Dracula, Death of Nosferatu by Christopher P. Nichols in 91. Dracula by John Gober and Jane Thornton in 95. In 96, playwright Stephen Dietz published a new adaptation. Then in 98, the play Undead, Dreams of Darkness, mixed Stoker's characters with the situations of those of Joseph Sheridan Le Fanu's Camellia, mm. which is another vampire work of that time which there are assertions that uh stoker pulled from that as well Mm. Um, another adaptation launched in 2005 with playwright p shane mitchell that same year an iconic adaptation of dracula in two acts premiered in moscow in 2013 and 14 black eyed theater adaptations entitled dracula toured across the uk The next year, My Sidekick Dracula by Kate Aksanova was released in the Ukraine. A High Camp adaptation was released in 2015. And then in 2019, Theater Folk published a new adaptation of the novel for high school and middle school drama programs. Mm. Holy shit. (laughs) (laughs) That is just dramatic stage performances. I will not be nearly as thorough for the other mediums. Yeah, yeah. But I wanted to give the scope. So I, I went with every dramatic stage adaptation I could find. Mm-hmm. So I, that was maybe a little boring. <laughs> but I wanted the <laughs> listener to just have a scope. So just stage theater dramas. Yeah. That was a glimpse into the amount of works that have gone through. So we're not done with the stage. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Moving over to stage musicals. Oh. 
There have been 19 adaptations that I could find between 1970s, I'm sorry, the bridge is out, you'll have to spend the night, <laughs> and 2011's Dracula L'Amour, Por Fort Que L'Amour. <laughs> so these adaptations, as you can hear, were global. Yeah. Dracula the musical ran on Broadway for 157 performances. Other musical adaptations premiered in the West End, also in Japan, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Spain, Czech Republic, Canada, Germany, Italy, Scotland, Sweden, and France. <laughs> and touring companies have taken them all across the world. There have also been four operas and four ballets wow. on the stage. So that whole thing is just stage performance. That's amazing. I do think that this one takes the cake. It is pop culture. So diving into the world of movies. So one distinction point I was able to make, we can narrow it down specifically into adaptations of the novel. Mm -hmm. And there are at least 16 known films. And I say known because the first was recorded in 1921, and it's a Hungarian-Austrian silent film called Dracula's Death. The picture's considered lost, but there's adequate proof of its existence. Mm -hmm. There are also reports of a 1920 Russian silent film, but nothing about the film is known to survive, including production stills. So most sources agree that its existence is too questionable to list it as the official first. Mm. The 1931 film version of Dracula was endorsed by the Stoker estate, and that was the one that starred Bela Lugosi, who I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. This is one of the most famous versions of the story and is widely credited with initiating the Universal Studios horror film series of the 30s and 40s, which I'll definitely get into. And this one was inducted into the National Film Registry in the year 2000. Um, there were Mexican, Turkish, Canadian film adaptations in this group as well. So not just Hollywood. I mean, this is a global story. Mm -hmm. Other notable versions were 1958's Dracula from Hammer Film, starring Christopher Lee as Count Dracula and Peter Cushing as Van Helsing. 1992's Francis Ford Coppola produced and directed Bram Stoker's Dracula, starring Gary Oldman as Dracula. And of course, Winona Ryder, Keanu Reeves, uh, and Anthony Hopkins. Mm. And then lastly, just for point of mention, there was also Mel Brooks' iconic 1995 comedy spoof, Dracula Dead and Loving It, starring <laughs> Leslie Nielsen. <laughs> um, also, <laughs> a good deal of pornography, really? <laughs> pornographic adaptations of the book. That, uh, so we won't go into detail, but those exist for Vampire anyone who's interested. Vampire porn is a thing. Uh, yeah, I... It must be a big thing, too, to, to a small group of people. That makes sense. <laughs> I mean, it's very sexually charged. Yeah. Anyway. So, pivoting slightly from films that are adaptations of the novel, now to films of the character. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Kleenex tissue type of relationship. Mm -hmm. Um. And that blows the list up. Mm -hmm. So, like I mentioned, Universal Studios horror films helped make Dracula a household name, at least in the United States. So beyond the 1931 movie I mentioned earlier, the studio also featured him as a villain in a number of movies, including several where he met other monsters, the most famous of which was the comedy Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. I was hoping you were going to mention that. I loved those when I was little. <laughs> I also loved them. <laughs> I mean, how could you not? They're amazing. And Lugosi played Dracula on film for the second and final time wow. in that one. Wow. And Universal is actually working right now on rebooting their old monsters. I mean, it was an extremely different take if you watched The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss. Yeah. So Universal is probably looking at reinvigorating, you know, the Wolfman, Dracula... Mm -hmm. I, th I think all of that's probably in the works. This is a story that will continue. Yeah, for sure. Um, I also mentioned in their Hammer films, their 1958 adaptation, that was the one with Christopher Lee. Mm -hmm. So they made an additional eight films starring the character of Dracula. Wow. And then from 1957 to 1979, I found 19 movies that featured Dracula. Wow. <laughs> and that included 1964's Batman Dracula. 
a black and white American film produced and directed by Andy Warhol without the permission of DC Comics. What? <laughs> oh yes. my God, that sounds crazy. Um, so I'm, as you can tell, I'm only pulling out the highlights because the lists are crazy yeah. long. Uh, from 1980 to 1999, I found another film, another nine films that featured Dracula. Wow. And then... From 2000 to 2019, another 17. <laughs> and then one more at, one more so far mm-hmm. um, in this decade, which was an Indian-Bengali language psychological thriller, Dracula Sir. Oh, my God. Now, to be clear, these are just Dracula movies. These are not, like, any vampire movie yes these are dracula specific so not just vampires right vampires would be (laughs) infinite (laughs) yeah so the first batch was specific adaptations of brand stoker's novel right and these are all movies that feature the character of dracula right amazing and then moving over to the small screen uh, the novel itself has been adapted at least 12 times over the years. Most recently with 2020's Dracula miniseries uh, with the BBC in partnership with Netflix. Mm. Which I did watch, did enjoy. I didn't. I will. <laughs> uh, I, it's one of those, it's like very BBC. I feel like it's somewhere between three and five episodes and that's the whole thing. Yeah. Which is a great way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> And then Dracula, the character, has been featured in over 30 TV shows that I could find. I'm sure there are Yeah. Oh, my gosh. And then there's, like, Dracula adjacents. Mm -hmm. So not necessarily just blanket vampire. Like, very Dracula, but not Dracula in name. So the grandpa from the Munsters. Right, right, right. Is a Dracula motif. Right. And The Monsters is being adapted into a movie currently by Rob Zombie. I heard. I know. It may have caused considerable delight in my household. <laughs> um, so, yeah. like, And that's TV, live action TV. Mm-hmm. Dracula has appeared in more than 50 cartoons. And 13 times, at least, across the worlds of anime and manga. I mean, Hotel Transylvania. Hello. Those are great. <laughs> Um, they totally are. <laughs> I haven't seen the latest one, can't, can't, but the other one's so good. Quality, quality. There have been 13 Dracula comics, oh 11 God. Dracula radio adaptations, including Orson Welles' production in 1938. Wow. So aside from the near infinite amount of cameos and appearances in the world of literature, a few stood out to me. Um, Obviously, inspiration for Stephen King's Salem Lot mm-hmm. um, and Elizabeth Kostova's novel, The Historian, which is one of my favorites. I mm. so highly recommend it. Mm. I love it. She was an English teacher. She wrote this book. It's also optioned for a movie. I hope it comes out one day. Mm. Unexpectedly, at this point, Dracula's all over music. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way I could, even if I wanted to list them all out. So I pulled just a couple Mm -hmm. um, that are going to be on our Spotify playlist as well. So Alice Cooper's The Ballad of Dwight Fry, Blue Oyster Colt's Nosferatu, Annie Lennox's Love Song for a Vampire, Iron Maiden's Dracula, Outcast's Dracula's Wedding, and recently B. Miller's pop song Dracula. Mm. So check out our Most Foul Music playlist. You'll get a... A glimpse into this and then again not keeping count but the world of games there mm. are so many pc games console games board games card games mm. it was blowing my mind like how do i even put this together yeah <laughs> but yeah it's an incredible reach as a character i mean maybe the like so not talking about like my go-to of like this is the biggest cultural thing but like I don't know if there is a character in the history of literature that has gone as far as Dracula. And Mm -hmm. it's never even crossed my mind until doing this research. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, like we were saying before, I think it, it, it gave substance to something that already existed in people's. Like, if you follow Jung, it's like 
this archetype already existed deep in the dark crevices of the human minds, but this gave it something to reflect off of in a way that brought all of that out. And so it really is an archetype. And when you think of our childhoods, the Count from Sesame Street. Yeah. Count Chocula and the cereal aisle. And I mean, this is just English speaking. Like, I mean, I think that there's Mm -hmm. a whole world of stuff that is not going to show up in English language searches. Like some will, things that were of, of note or high points. But I mean, you have to think that everything that exists here, there's got to be all of this that exists like in Romanian culture, you know? Totally. Yeah. So that's crazy. So yeah, these adaptations have contributed to this enduring popularity. I mean, Dracula is pop culture. Yeah. And who's to say it? I mean, of course we would have had vampires and vampire lore that existed before Bram Stoker, it's existed after. But who's to say without this book and this sort of accidental takeover of the name Dracula through a mistranslation, what it would be now? I mean, would we have Twilight? Right. I love the show What We Do in the Shadows. Yeah, I don't... Would that exist? I don't think we would. I mean, I think it would... I think vampires would be like fairies or leprechauns like it would exist but it wouldn't be on this other plane of existence because i think it's kind of like you know that process that we talked about in in the creepy pasta where somebody just made some shit up and then some people gave it a backstory only in this case the backstory linked so it dovetailed so perfectly with this historic mm-hmm. character that it just cemented it in this way that is unshakable. And coming full circle, so Bram's great-grandnephew, he's an international best-selling author in his own right, Mm -hmm. but he even suggested that Bram Stoker's failure to comply with U.S. copyright laws contributed to this legacy Mm. because writers, authors, and producers didn't need to pay the licensing fee for use of the character. So interesting. I mean, it makes so so much sense. Yeah. Yeah. While, you know, would have been nice to have the copyright, that probably is the reason this has happened. So his loss was humanity's gain. And because of that, you know, Vlad III might have been an accidental inspiration in the creation of Dracula, but I'd wager that Dracula has done way more to preserve the legacy, history, and cultural relevancy of Vlad III and not the other way around. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. And such a different take on what we usually do. So interesting. Oh, this is a good one. <laughs> We're not done. We haven't signed off. (laughs) You can't cut that out. (laughs) No, I know. I mean, and to be honest, like I'm someone who in school avoided history classes like the plague. I just found them boring. I wasn't good at memorizing dates. They were all about wars I didn't care about. And there wasn't, now it's a lot more common to take a holistic approach. So literature and history and all of that is combined and looked at together. But every time we do one of these historic episodes, I find myself wanting more and going deeper and like caring, you know, Moldovia and Transylvania and Wallachia and exonyms. And, you know, I mean, I went deep. I went into the linguistic background and the etymology of the word that now means vampire in Romanian. And like, I mean, I was deep in it and just loving it because it's so interesting. And it's one of those stories, I think, that depending where your specific interests lie, like you can go down one of many different like rabbit holes with Mm -hmm. this one. History could be this interesting. (laughs) I know, and it totally should be. So I know there's not lots of time for reading but i so recommend the historian by elizabeth kostova okay i'm gonna put that one on my list essentially dracula Uh is bringing in new people all throughout history to 
like basically write his story like he's the historian of uh, all of human history uh, and it was like a really good book and then there was like 20 pages in it that were like incredible uh, uh, yeah i love that book uh, okay i'm gonna put it on my list so listeners we hope you love this episode yeah uh, it is so interesting <laughs> And I mean, I'm just going to say it again. If what you always say is like, this is maybe the most impactful one we've ever covered. My thing that I always like beat the dead horses, people have always been interested in true crime. Like it's part of the human condition. Yes, we have to do it responsibly. Yes, you know, all of the things that we've talked about still apply. But people's fascination with vampires and impaling i mean you could not get any grosser or more gory or grim or dark than this but there's something in us that is drawn to it and i think to deny that only gives it more power and looking at this i mean this isn't true crime necessarily but it's it's dark it's crime it's like that grimy part of the human condition and people have always wanted and been drawn to it. Yeah, it might be a slightly different interpretation of true crime, but it is certainly most foul. (laughs) Definitely. And that's what it's all about, is the shadow, the shadow part of humanity. Well, listener, tell us what you think about Dracula (laughs) in a five-star review on the Apple Podcast Store or... Spotify now has uh, yeah. reviews. Give us a review. Five stars. Woo! And as always, we appreciate the hell out of you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Most Foul. If you've got a tip for a future episode topic or want to send us your own inciting incident for a mini episode, visit our website at mostfoulpod.com and write in. This has been a Facts from Janet production.